about a year and a half ago or so, some friends rented a house for a few of us to share on the Cape. We went down there to do some months of meditation by the ocean. When I got to the place and I moved into my designated bedroom, I saw that there was a cartoon strip that had been left on the desk there. The cartoon was from the comic strip Peanuts. I don't know if you've you're familiar with those characters, but um, in the first frame of the cartoon, there are these two characters, Lucy and Charlie Brown. And Lucy is saying to Charlie Brown, you know, Charlie, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) And then in the next frame, Charlie Brown says to Lucy, well, what in the world can I do about that? (laughs) Then in the third and final frame, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, well, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the trouble. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation, I would be walking by that desk and my eye would just fall upon that cartoon and I would see those words. The problem with you is that you're you. And very often, of course, this is how we feel, that the very root of our problem is the fact that we are who we are. But it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe we've had a lot of Lucy's in our life telling us (laughs) exactly that. But it really doesn't have to be that way. It reminded me, actually, in some strange manner of Uh, the first meditation retreat that I ever did where I went to India when I was I was really pretty young and I had very little self-awareness or self-knowledge and so most everything was very shocking (laughs) as I looked within I was like oh (laughs) look at that (laughs) that's a big surprise (laughs) and it took a lot to come to a place of understanding how to work skillfully with everything that I saw and not to fall into that abyss of thinking, well, the problem with me is that I'm me. When I first practiced meditation, the very first instruction I was ever given, this was my first 10-day retreat in India, was to try to be aware of the in-and-out breath at the nostril. So that was my practice. And I couldn't do it. I would sit down and just feel one or two or three breaths, maybe, and my mind would be off. And some endless period of time later, I would kind of come to, and I would be furious at myself. I would be so angry. i think, how could you have done that? You can't even concentrate on the breath. It's terrible. And then I'd feel one or two more breaths and the same thing would happen. And my anger and frustration and level of self-judgment would build. And somehow I just had the idea that to succeed or do well at meditation that I needed that judgment and that kind of uh, sense of laborious, grim effort. Things got so bad that at one point during that first retreat, I got so frustrated with the persistent wanderings of my attention that I resolved that the next time my attention wandered away from the breath, I was just going to start banging my head against the wall. (laughs) This is is a true story. (laughs) So I made that declaration, and very fortunately for me, the lunch bell rang just then. And I went and waited down on the lunch line, and... In those days in India, retreats were not completely silent. We had silent periods and silent days, but uh, the whole extent of the retreat wasn't silent. So this was not a silent day. and There were people talking all around me on the lunch line. And I heard these two people behind me that I didn't know. Uh, One person said to the other, how was your morning? And the second person replied with, apparent great lightness of spirit by saying, 
Oh, it was pretty bad. You know, I couldn't concentrate at all, but this afternoon will probably be better. I turned around in shock, thinking, don't you understand how to meditate? <laughs> like, why are you taking this all so casually? <laughs> this all seems wrong. And that person that I was so shocked at turned out to be Joseph Goldstein, and that was how we actually met. That was our first meeting. And what I discovered was, and he at that point had been practicing for about four years probably, and I had been practicing for about four minutes, and, and that was the difference. Um, I began to discover as my practice, my own practice evolved, and I grew more mature in the meditative process, that the conditions that need to come together for concentration to take place were actually very different from the kind of tormented, judgmental struggle that I had been engaged in. In the Buddhist psychology, as we've, we've kind of been alluding to all along, when different mental qualities are talked about, they're often talked about in terms of uh, this element that's known as the proximate cause. The proximate cause is that condition or set of conditions or force that most easily gives rise to something else. So, for example, the proximate cause of feeling metta is seeing the good in someone. If we see in the good, if we see the good in someone, that will most readily and easily give rise to the sense of metta. What I discovered about the force of concentration was that it also has a proximate cause mentioned in the Buddhist psychology, and I had expected that to be some kind of valiant struggle or tremendous zeal or some frightful application of effort. And instead, much to my amazement, according to the text, the proximate cause of concentration is said to be happiness. That was a shocker. <laughs> I said, happiness? <laughs> That's strange. But there it is. You know, so then what does it mean? It's not, it seems clear, the kind of happiness that comes from the fleeting experience of pleasure. And that's a wonderful thing when it happens for the duration of the time that we get what we want or things feel good or uh, they seem pleasant. That's a wonderful experience. But it's so fleeting. It's so evanescent. It's so completely temporal that as the Buddha was trying to describe this world, sometimes he would have to use images to somehow convey the sense of how everything can be. Everything can come into existence. This whole universe can arise before us and within us, and yet there'd be nothing that we can hold on to. And so he would say things like, life is like a flash of lightning in a summer sky, like an echo, like a rainbow, like a dream, like a drop of dew on a blade of grass. It's all arising, shimmering, coming into being, and vanishing. It's so fragile. And so the kind of happiness that we experience is just as fragile when it is dependent upon the experience of pleasure as we normally define it. Once I was uh, vacationing with some friends of mine who had a, a young child, <clears throat> and I noticed that whenever something went wrong in his young life, whenever he didn't get what he wanted or something broke or somebody went away, he would start shrieking, screaming. Uh, throughout the house and what he would scream would be no one in this house loves me anymore and it was so heart-rending really because I, I understood what he meant <laughs> you know that state of mind where something breaks something changes someone goes away and it's like all the love and all possibility in the universe has been withdrawn from us but it doesn't need to be that way because that kind of happiness is just one kind of happiness that we can experience, and it is the most unreliable. 
the kind of happiness that's talked about in terms of being the proximate cause of concentration is more about spaciousness and tranquility of mind. And to some degree, we come to that by having a greater perspective on our lives. This was, in a way, the perspective that Joseph was describing all those years ago on that lunch line, understanding the natural flow of ups and downs and changes, and somehow being able to be at peace with the truth of things. And I found that for myself, as my practice went on, as it developed, that my ability to accept these ups and downs and changes and um, all these different elements of life actually was very bound up with the degree of my own self-respect. That when my sense of self-respect was stronger, I could go through some difficult periods without feeling crushed by them without feeling as though I was just so disheartened by them because they no longer reflected a lack of self-worth to me, that the problem with me was that I was me. And I could actually go through kind of the up and pleasant and enjoyable periods uh, in a way that was easier and actually more enjoyable because I was no longer trying to get a death grip on them for fear that they would change someday and leave me feeling badly about myself again. And so that quality of self-respect seemed a tremendous component of that particular kind of happiness. And also became clear that the development of that degree of self-respect was very tied into how I lived my life off of the meditation cushion, outside of the meditation center. It was about my life and how I lived it. I found this truth not only in my practice, but in the classical teachings of the Buddha, which are often presented in a kind of causal sequence. Like, if this is in place, it likely leads to that. If that's in place, it likely leads to that, and so on. There is a text called the um, the Siddhimago, or the Path of Purification, which is a a great commentarial work in the Theravada tradition, which actually talks about this particular sequence unfolding. It starts with saying, morality is the foundation for the development of restraint. And again, in the Buddhist teaching, morality is not a kind of puritanical abiding by rules, but more in that sense of If you truly loved yourself, you would never harm another. And that we can dedicate our lives to lessening suffering in this world rather than increasing suffering in this world. So it means living in a way with greater love and compassion, more in harmony with the innate truth of our interdependence. And then restraint is what we do when an impulse, like a a desire or anger or something, comes up in the mind and we actually don't follow it out. There's an amazing quality of freedom that comes when we realize the transparency of those states as well and that we don't have to follow them out. We may sometimes, but with greater awareness and greater kind of resiliency of our being, we don't have to be victimized by every single thing that comes up in our minds. Sometimes I have fun sitting up here uh, fantasizing instead of meditating. And I think, what would it be like if just one or two people in this room or a room like this followed every impulse that came up in their mind in the space of an hour? This place would be pretty chaotic. You know, you can just imagine standing up, sitting down, you know, going over and hugging somebody and going over and hitting somebody else. And just like, this is a lot would go on with any one of us just following every impulse. So it's not a question of shackling ourselves and um, binding ourselves in some terrible way, but really having the freedom to follow or not follow these various things that come up in our mind. I have a friend who uh, I just spent some time with a week or two ago who taught me 
this saying that is, is like her favorite saying, which I loved, which was, don't go there. <laughs> Just don't go there. <laughs> and I kept hearing she was involved in all these boards and meetings and things like that. And I kept hearing her say to people on the phone, don't go there. <gasps> and I thought, right. <laughs> what an intriguing concept. <laughs> don't go there. So that's restraint. And when we can restrain ourselves, then um, we actually don't experience all of the guilt and the anxiety and the, the fearfulness and, and the paranoia that comes when our lives are a mess, you know, when they're complicated. When we do go there again and again and think, ooh, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, I didn't really need to do that, did I? <laughs> so the, um, the positive effect of the quality of restraint is something that I think is uh, essential to understand in terms of the teachings of the Buddha and that is called gladdening the mind that there is a great stress actually laid on the positive effects of gladdening the mind we practice morality to gladden the mind we practice generosity to gladden the mind we practice metta to gladden the mind because there is brightness there and there's spaciousness there that we can enjoy, we can live from and with. So the, the practice of restraint leads to the absence of remorse. Our lives are not all complicated and full of regrets and that gladdens the mind. Because we actually experience more of a sense of connection to ourselves and to others than that kind of just spiriting sense of loneliness and alienation can be relieved. And this has nothing to do with how one lives. I was talking to how one lives in terms of form um, or external form. I was talking to somebody um, also just a little while ago, about a month or six weeks ago, who was writing a book on hermits and was doing all of this research on hermits. And um, somehow we got into that conversation and uh, in the course of the conversation one of us said you know there's a real difference between solitude and isolation even though on the outside maybe they would look alike because one could live in solitude with a tremendous sense of connectedness to life to the, really the boundlessness of life to beings to oneself or one could have a life that looks the same on the outside, but be really cut off in one's heart. And so the more we pay attention to how we live, the more we do the things that gladden the mind, the less lonely we actually are. And this gladdening the mind in the classical sequence is said to be the foundation for the development of happiness. So here we are at happiness which is one of peace and composure and, and things being rather easy rather than so very difficult. And I use the example often, I used it here just the other day, of what it's like when we tell a lie or speak some untruth and how complicated things get. You know, we, we tell this one little lie and then suddenly we have to tell another one to make sure that first one can stand. And then we have to tell another one, and then another one, and then we have to practically keep lists. You know, who did I tell what to? And was there anybody I told the truth to? Because that's too bad, because <laughs> then maybe they'll tell this, you know, all these other people, and they'll realize that I lied. And then we have to, you know, almost like make a, a strong effort to remember for ourselves what is true. There's just this cloak of delusion and confusion that comes when our lives are not straightforward, when they're not honest. So happiness means knowing that we're connected, having our, our lives be clear and our minds therefore be clear and more composed and more serene. And that is the happiness that's the foundation for concentration. And that concentration is the foundation for what is called correct knowledge and vision or seeing more clearly. It's knowing the truth of things for ourselves, which is a state of great fulfillment. That's the state of freedom. So happiness is right in there. It's not something uh, to be ignored or to be disparaged. It's really a very important state to gladden the mind, to experience 
the happiness of which we are capable. And I think that when we see people who are happy in this sense, we realize that it's a remarkable gift to the world. I have one teacher um, who's a Tibetan teacher. His name is Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, and he's known as Kempo very often by his students. He was once in a retreat telling us the story of his life, uh, beginning when he was a child and his father was a bandit and it was all very colorful and uh, exotic. And then he went on to say that, as I knew to be true, that when he was in Tibet as a teacher, as a lama, uh, he was extremely renowned and respected and he would, um, in fact, sit on a throne and address these multitudes of people, just vast numbers of people, and he had anything he wanted in the material sense and um, he had a very grand kind of life. And then with the Chinese invasion, he escaped Tibet because of the persecution. Um, and that was very sorrowful because he left his family not knowing if he would ever see them again. He escaped with about 70 people and just maybe two days after they set out from Tibet, they, were, uh, they fell into a, an ambush of Chinese soldiers and they were attacked and only five people survived, including himself. And then the very walk out through the Himalayas was extremely treacherous and uh, awful. And finally he got to Calcutta and he was living in um, this temple in Calcutta. He was given a place to sleep in a Buddhist temple, but he had to go out and beg every day for his food. And he said he would go out, he had to go out every single day to beg on the streets of Calcutta and it was hot and it was horrible. And um, he'd have to beg just for pennies so he could have a cup of tea. And as he was telling this story, it was so hard to hear. And uh, those of us who are so close to him, you know, we were, we were quite upset. And then he finished the story by saying, and I was very happy. <laughs> and it's like my mind just went, tilt? <laughs> and I thought, did he say he was very happy? I mean, how could he say he was very happy? He was a refugee. He'd left his family. He'd left his people. He, you know, he was practically starving in the streets of Calcutta. How could he say he was very happy? But he said he was very happy. And it wasn't a happiness of oblivion, you know, of, of being cut off. He was extremely in touch with the suffering of his people, with the suffering of um, their lives and his own life. It was a happiness of being sustained by something other than the immediate circumstances of his life. And he just kept repeating it. He said, I was very happy. And he was. You could see it. You know, and it wasn't a happiness that led him further away. It was a happiness that brought him closer to be able to work and serve and teach. And he said, reflecting back on his life as a monk in Tibet, living, um, you know, in that way, and then his life later on, and he said, isn't it just like a dream? All of these circumstances just coming and going. It's just like a dream. You know, and to say that he was happy, which he was, was really, it was kind of a celebration of the human spirit, and it was a celebration of his inner peace. It was a celebration of the refuge and the nourishment he found in the Buddhist teaching. That's the kind of happiness that is, is talked about as a possibility for every one of us. In effect, that's why the Buddha left home. You know, as a human being, having experienced all of that pleasure and delight and then finally seeing suffering. When he left, he more or less was asking some very basic questions about the nature of life. Like, what does it mean to be born into this human body? To be so vulnerable and helpless and to grow up and to grow older, whether we like it or not. To be subject to sickness, whether we like it or not. To die, whether we want that or not. And where is there a kind of happiness to be found anyway with the body, the body following its own nature? And what does it mean 
to have this mind of a human being where we might wake up in the morning and be filled with fear and filled with faith by the afternoon and then doubt and then sorrow and then anger and then joy. Just these cascades of changing states. Also outside of our our control. It's not within our personal dominion to decide what we're going to feel today all day. And where is there happiness to be found anyway? And so he left home and it said that whatever questions we have ourselves about this can, just as for him, be discovered through the power of our own awareness. That he was a human being, just like us, and had the kinds of questions any one of us might have, from not wanting to just live mechanically, from wanting to see more deeply. And that this is our potential to actually discover this. When we practice, this actually infuses our practice, whether spoken or not. When I first was uh, in Burma doing loving-kindness practice, and Upandita called me into his room to give me the first instruction in metta, the first thing he said to me was, do you think you're you're going to succeed at doing this practice? And I thought, this is a trap, you know. He's looking for conceit or he's looking for some kind of pride. And so I said, I don't know. <laughs> like, maybe I will, <laughs> maybe I won't. And, and he just kind of shook his head dolefully at me and he said, everything you do, you should do with confidence. You should do with faith in yourself. That's the way to do this practice. That's the gladdening of the mind that we... Uh, we don't believe the voice of Lucy echoing throughout our heads. We may hear it a lot, but that's okay. We can know it for what it is. And we can actually engender some confidence, some joy in our own capacity and the rightfulness of our wish to be happy. That's one reason, as I mentioned somewhat um, earlier to some people in a a very classical setting like Burma, <clears throat> doing this practice, you often will begin a sitting by reciting the 11 benefits that are supposed to accrue from doing metta practice. Like you sleep easily and you awaken easily and you have pleasant dreams and people love you and um, and there, there are 11 of them. And you recite them not because it was necessarily your immediate experience, like maybe you had a wretched night's sleep, you know, with terrible nightmares, but uh, because in a way, in reciting them, you're reminding yourself, in effect, that you're not doing this practice alone, that by taking a risk in life to be somewhat different than our conditioning, to take a deeper look at things, to set out on a path for a truer happiness or a greater happiness than the ordinary experience of pleasure, then you are necessarily joining a stream of beings who from the beginning of time, women and men and children, have done just that. They've taken a risk and they've determined upon a deeper life. They've determined upon a life of greater value, greater happiness. By reciting those benefits, it's, like a, it's almost like a gesture of solidarity and realizing that we're not alone, that we are joining that stream. And so it's in itself a practice of great happiness. When we can absorb that a little bit and actually take delight in these things, take delight in our goodness, take delight in the gladdening of the mind and understand the difference between that and conceit or pride. Then we're actually in a position where we might really begin to cultivate the third of those Brahma-viharas, which is the state of sympathetic joy. That quality of being able to actually rejoice in the happiness of others. Because that ability, which is really a kind of generosity, is born from a sense of inner abundance. 
is born from being able to rejoice in our own selves. Upandita once used the example of what it was like to give a gift to a young child who's just so open in their delight. You know, they're so happy and they maybe run around the room with the, the toy or whatever it is. And you compare that to giving a gift to a, a rather over-sophisticated, jaded person who just sort of nods distantly and says, oh, thank you very much. And he said, be like that child. You know, to really enjoy and delight is not the same as being attached. Attached is holding on, trying to keep things from ever changing. And that's a state of suffering because it's so unrealistic. I often, you know, I think, well, wouldn't it be great if attachment really worked? Since we're so used to it, you know, and we're so good at it. I actually have no philosophical problem with attachment, except it's so totally unrealistic. It's, like, it's not even that our problem is that we hold on to things or people or whatever, but that we try, because we can't hold on to them anyway. You know, what have you ever been able to keep from changing in your life, ever? So it's not even that we get attached, it's that we try to get attached. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't work. But that is different than that state of of being free enough and open enough and kind of guileless enough to really enjoy the moment, to enjoy the possibility of this moment, really being present in it, enjoying the the goodness that is coming through us or around us. once had um, a conversation with my teacher Manindra and a number of us were there and we asked him why do you practice mindfulness meditation we were expecting a very um, kind of heavy uh, abstract esoteric special magic weird answer and uh, we all kind of gathered around him uh, waiting for this answer and he said well I practice mindfulness so that I can really enjoy seeing the purple flowers that are growing by the roadside, which I might otherwise ordinarily miss. And it's so wonderful, because we miss a lot that we could enjoy, that could fill us with happiness if we actually paid attention. We say that generosity comes from this kind of sense of inner abundance, because we have to believe we have something to give. And that might not be something material. It might be uh, energy. It might be metta. It might be simply presence, actually paying attention to somebody and being with them through something rather than being removed. But in any case, it comes from a sense of inner abundance. It's interesting, they um, they did some survey in America of uh, these different cities in terms of how much money people uh, statistically gave to charity. And they found that in the cities with the largest population of very wealthy people, there was very little given. And that in cities with a very small population of very wealthy people, uh, there was a lot more given because it has nothing to do with really how much somebody has. It has to do with that inner state. And many of you I know, just like myself, have spent time in Asia. And sometimes it's quite remarkable. Like one of the um, amazing things about practicing in Burma, for example, or in other Buddhist countries, is that you never pay anything in order to practice at retreat centers. Uh, you don't pay for room or board or anything um, because everything you eat, every meal is offered by people. And sometimes it's a single person, sometimes it's a family, sometimes a whole village will come together to offer you that meal. And always people will offer the best of what they can and sometimes that's not very much. So you never actually know about the quality of what your next meal is going to be. But it is so amazing. And many major meditation centers 
um, there will be waiting lists for up to a year. You have to wait a year before you have a chance to offer a meal because people so honor the fact that people are meditating and they just want to give, even if they have so little. And uh, in Burma, at any rate, the people who offered the meal would often come and watch you eat and they would be just dressed in rags and, um, and they would be so happy that they were giving you something to eat. It was just amazing to see that generosity does not depend on material substance. It is a gesture of the heart. And that is something that we can really learn, is to delight in a sense of inner abundance. We always have something to give, which is one of the reasons I like metta meditation so much, because we can always do that. There's always an energetic possibility of affirming our presence in some situation. When we do turn our attention more toward that delight within, that ability to rejoice or that sense of abundance, then we can have that feeling of why it wouldn't be so threatening to take delight in the happiness of somebody else. That we don't have to feel so much envy or fear or disquietude that someone else is happy. And that's the state of sympathetic joy. When I was um, writing my first book, as it's now called, Loving Kindness, I would go around um, the center in Barry, and I'd say to people, I need a sympathetic joy story. Does anybody have a sympathetic joy story? And it's like nobody had a sympathetic (laughs) joy story. It was amazing. I actually don't think there's a single story in that chapter. and in part, that's because it doesn't make for very exciting stories. You know, you say, well, I was really jealous and miserable, and then I got happy <laughs> that you were happy. Um, but in part, it's because it was a very rare quality. I also went around when I was doing the chapter on morality, and I'd say, well, does anybody have any sexual misconduct stories? And else, and everybody had a story, you know. But sympathetic joy is, is a lot rarer, I'm afraid, than sexual misconduct. And it is a beautiful quality. Um, maybe it's so rare for you know different reasons. In part because we don't often take delight in the goodness within us, in, a, in our inner abundance, and um, that state of the mind that is that is fulfilled and that can give. And in part, there are certain habits of mind that we have that take us away from the ability to express sympathetic joy in different situations. One of these is judgment. I don't know if you've ever had the experience um, of offering somebody some advice about something. Like this, Actually, this story is in my sympathetic joy chapter, and it's a true story. It's actually something I did, um, where somebody asked me once about going to a particular place on vacation, and I said, oh, don't go there. I said, you won't have a very good time. You know, it's like, the climate is weird, (laughs) and the the food's not very good. It wasn't here, I promise. Uh, The food's not very good, and the climate is weird, and the people aren't so friendly, and it's really expensive, and you won't have a very good time. And then they went there anyway, and they had a fabulous time, and it it was fantastic. And then they came back and they told me and it was like in that moment my mind had a choice. I could either feel badly that I was wrong and that I had given wrong advice and in a way trying to find shelter in righteousness and the other choice was actually to be happy that they had a really good time even though my advice had been all wrong. It was like I could see my mind wanting to be right so badly that the fact that I was wrong was much more important to me than they had the fact that they had had such a good time. But it was another case of saying, don't go there. <laughs> you don't have to go there. And in fact, I was able after some time to be a little happier for them. <laughs> and, you know, and sometimes we really have that kind of determination that we do want to be right. We want to decide how everyone else should live. And 
if somebody is quite happy living in another way, it's difficult to be that generous, to really let go of our ideas and our opinions and actually be happy for them. And then, of course, there's an element of discernment that's necessary as well, because sometimes people think they're happy and they're creating tremendous suffering all around them. So it's not that we lose that ability to understand the difference, but sometimes they are happy and they're not hurting anybody. It's just different than our opinion of how they should be. So that's one obstacle we need to overcome for sympathetic joy. Another is the state of comparing. Comparing is one of those mind states that um, is very interesting. It's interesting the way it's discussed in the Buddhist psychology where it's talked about as an unskillful state of mind. No matter what conclusion we come to based on the comparison, In other words, we could compare ourselves to somebody else and decide that we are better than they are or not as good as they are or just the same as they are. And whatever we decide, it's a problem. Because the very act of comparing has a quality of restlessness to it, the sort of gnawing dissatisfaction and unease that will never be fulfilled. It's not a mind state that comes to cessation or comes to rest without our understanding or seeing through it and in effect moving our mind somewhere else. So for example, if you were just sitting here, and of course we don't have a lot to compare here, but one might get into the idea, which is not actually a correct idea, but a common idea that the longer you can sit motionless in meditation, the better your meditation practice is. And so that is an obvious way we compare to one another in a situation like this. So you sit down after a walking period, and then the person sitting somewhere next to you moves about 10 minutes into the sitting, and you think, oh, good. (gasps) I'm really a much better meditator than they are. Look at that. It's only 10 minutes into the sitting. They already had to move. And then, you know, you're quite happy for a little while, and then you start thinking, oh, but wait a minute. They were actually sitting here already when I came in from the walking. Maybe they sat the last sitting all the way through the walking and only had to move 10 minutes into this sitting. They're really much better than I am. And that, of course, doesn't feel very good. And then you kind of feel your way around, you know, all the people sitting around you and kind of decide where you are in relationship to them. And maybe if you're mind can reach everyone in the room and you figure out where you are in reference to all of them but then you never know it's like somebody could change or somebody new could walk in and you have to do it all over again (laughs) you know it's not the same it's not the the kind of mind state that resolves itself you don't have to do it once and say oh good that's done you have to do it over and over and over again so it's considered unskillful no matter what decision you make, even if you decide you're perfectly equal. And so it's a little bit like a trap, you know, that you have to see through, you have to understand its unsatisfactory nature. And sometimes we are just lost in a state of envy. You know, when I use that example of uh, the bucket, getting filled moment by moment, the mind getting filled moment by moment, the way a bucket gets filled drop by drop. I also used to play with that image sometimes in imagining myself standing by my bucket, just kind of looking over into the next person (laughs) and saying, oh, there's a lot more in there, isn't there, than there is in mine. But it's ridiculous. You know, first, we could never know. Second, what difference does it make? Because our only um, antagonist, in a way, if that's even the right word, is our own ignorance. That's all. We're not doing battle with ourselves. We're not doing battle with the world. We're simply trying to understand more truly, more clearly, who we are and to be happy 
because that happiness is the basis of our being able to serve and give. We can be lost in a state of impatience. We feel cut off from our own joy and from being able to rejoice for others, often because we're impatient. You know, we're doing fine for a little while and then something happens and we feel as though our metta has fallen away or our mindfulness has been obliterated and that's probably true. But can we begin again? Because just as I was incredibly frustrated and upset at myself to the point of wanting to bang my head against the wall, because of not being able to concentrate, we can be furious at ourselves simply because things are the way that they are. But where is the vision of truth in that? It's not through a straining, harsh, impossible effort that we're going to be able to concentrate. It's through that quality of happiness, which is reflected in the the ability to be able to begin again. In that moment of starting again is forgiveness, is letting go, is some tranquility, is a recognition that it's gratitude, really. I mean, that we don't have to do hours of remedial work to somehow be able to start again, that we haven't ruined anything, we haven't failed. Nothing has been destroyed. That we just have to start again. And our starting again moment is as complete and as full as anything we could want. We can get so impatient with ourselves. Especially in a quality like the development of sympathetic joy, which we do through the metta. We need to be very patient. We need to allow things to unfold and go through all of those times of comparing and judgment. And I often think that um, the journey of developing these qualities, the Brahma-viharas, is a very interesting and intricate journey because we go through a very great terrain. We go through the terrain of all of the qualities that hold us back from the full expression of these, the Brahma-viharas of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And we go through all those qualities that are really close to those qualities but aren't quite them either, that we get confused by. It's a very intricate journey to arrive there and it doesn't happen immediately. Very early on, I think within the first month of our uh, starting uh, the center in Barry, which is called the Insight Meditation Society, we received two very interesting letters in the mail, which I found interesting mostly because of how they were addressed. Uh, one was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society, <laughs> and uh, The other was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. And I actually, through these years, I'm developing more and more of an affinity with the Hindsight Meditation Society because I think it often is like that, you know, that we practice and we practice and we practice and we do all these things and we don't really see what's happening and then suddenly we see what's happening. You know, not necessarily in the context of formal practice, but in some meeting, some meeting with somebody and you're a little happier for them than you ever really felt possible. And you go, oh, look at that. But the Instant Meditation Society, from the beginning, has been a puzzler, you know, because um, I used to sit and look at that envelope and think, what were they thinking? You know, my mind went everywhere from, you know, some kind of dehydrated kit and you add water and you get instant meditation to I just couldn't imagine but of course it's a tremendous irony because there is no instant meditation except in 
the sense of this instant, which is the only time we can actually practice. It's not necessarily going to be this immediate gratification and this perfect fulfillment of all of these qualities, but we can rest confident in our potential simply because we're human beings and we're aware. All those possibilities are latent within us, just as they were for the Buddha as Bodhisattva. That this is actually something we can bring to life. We practice in a way to look at the joy, to look at the goodness in ourselves and to look at the joy in life, the small things sometimes, seeing the flowers, the purple flowers growing by the roadside and appreciating one another, being grateful for what we have because it's also a part of the truth, just as opening to suffering is very much a part of the truth. And in a way, they all balance each other. If we only focus on the suffering, it's very difficult for us to have true compassion and not to fall into either sorrow or anger or bitterness or some other state. And if we only focus on the joy and refuse to open to the suffering, then, of course, we're living in tremendous denial and pretense. So we work to open to both because they're both aspects of the truth and they balance each other. It's sympathetic joy or the, the joy we can open to that actually allows us to also open to compassion without being completely shattered by it. And it's opening to suffering and developing compassion that allows us to open to joy without being seduced by it, without being made forgetful and cut off by it. So each of these, as we practice, helps us be more and more connected to ourselves and to all beings everywhere. There's a quotation from the poet Wordsworth, which I've always felt really reflects the nature of meditation practice when he said, with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. That whole practice of morality, of living in a way that is expressive of love and compassion is like the power of harmony. That's just what it is. The eye is made quiet by the power of harmony. And concentration, being in touch with ourselves, gathering all that energy back in, is like the deep power of joy. And then we can see into the life of things. We can open to suffering without being broken by that. And we can open to happiness without getting lost in attachment. We can open to all things at all times. Let's sit together for a few minutes. 